This is Zip Rap on VFBS with Kate Jabbar. Is Islamic State in striking distance of Baghdad? New urban warfare means more people killed. That is increasingly where conflict is taking place, and so the risk of uh, collateral damage, civilian casualties increases. NATO chiefs of staff list new security challenges, and is the US Air Force working up a space war? Islamic State fighters are now said to be in complete control of the Syrian town of Palmyra. Most of the inhabitants have left and the militants have taken over a prison, an airbase and an intelligence centre. There are fears that IS will demolish the town's ancient ruins, which are a World Heritage Site, as it sees any examples of pre-Islamic art as idolatry. Palmyra has fallen just five days after the Islamist group seized Ramadi, capital of Iraq's largest province, Anbar. I'm joined now on Skype by Abdel Bariatwan, author of Islamic State, the Digital Caliphate, and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is here with me in the studio. Hello to both of you. Abdel Bari, first of all, how significant are these gains? Is Islamic State winning, do you think? I believe yes. Uh, unfortunately, Islamic State is winning. They have now uh, conquered more than 50% of Syria. They managed to capture Ramadi, which is one of the biggest cities in Iraq. And they are about 60 kilometers away from Baghdad. So Baghdad could be the next target for uh, Islamic State. The problem is, you know, the, the American strategy is not working. They, you know, when they started the bombardment of uh, IS position in Syria and Iraq, we were told that this will cripple the organization, and we were, we were told that they are winning. But um, suddenly we wake up and we see the Islamic State capturing uh, Palmyra and capturing Ramadi, and uh, also they put their hands on a huge cache of weapons, very sophisticated weapons. This could be used maybe for the attacks against Baghdad very soon. You say the American strategy is not working. What do you think the Americans should do? Well, actually, the American, uh, you know, they are confused. They are panicking. In the beginning, they said, now our priority is to fight Islamic State and to root it out from Syria and Iraq. So, and suddenly, they were actually, they came to the Saudi Turkish pressure and they changed their priority saying that now uh, the Syrian regime is illegal and we have to topple the regime in, in, in Damascus. I believe, you know, you cannot fight two battles at the same time. First, you know, against the regime and at the same time against the Islamic State. So I believe this confusion uh, played to the hands of the Islamic State, uh, to the hand of the strategy to capture more lands and more actually uh, towns and cities in Iraq and Syria. And that's what is happening now. I heard the American are going to revise this strategy. This is admission that it is not working after 3,700 3, sorties uh, the Islamic State emerged victorious at least for the time being. Your, your book is about the rise of IS and it's a complicated set of different factors that have been at play for a long time now and you talk about the kind of the, the lack of comprehension by the US and how to deal with the situation. How, how has IS got so powerful? 
Well, it's got so powerful simply because uh, the American, as I said, when they started evaluating the situation in Syria and Iraq, they got it wrong. First, they were completely dependent on a sectarian government in Iraq, and they actually did not differentiate between stability and uh, uh, the um, new situation in Syria. They actually sided with the Syrian armed opposition. They did not actually give them enough weapon in the beginning in order to succeed against the regime. And then they were surprised that the radical Islamic states, uh, radical Islamic state got the, you know, the upper hands and they captured uh, Rekka and Mosul in, in, in last uh, summer. So it is, this is the problem. And also that when I say they did not understand the real structure of the Islamic state, I meant, you know, that they thought that those people are, uh, you know, uneducated, they are um, and the radicals, but they never actually reached to the conclusion, which I reached in my book. They are actually the, the hardcore, I mean, the hardcore of this Islamic State, the ex-officers of Saddam Hussein, Republican Guards and Army and Security Forces. They are not amateurish. They are not actually with just uh, long beard and uh, uh, very, very... Uh, you know, dirty clothes. No, they are. They have very, very strategic brains on their ranks, and that's why they are winning because they uh, underestimated the American and the Arab allies. Underestimated uh, the, the strength of those people. Christopher Lee. Every every single page of Abdel Bariatwan's book should be read by the British chiefs of staff and the American chiefs of staff, because let me put it in one illustration. Since the end of the Korean War. Um, the Americans have bombed 33 countries. Not one of those bombings has been successful. When this bombing campaign started, it was based on false information, for example, as an, exa as an example of what happened in shock and awe in the first of the Gulf Wars, the 1991 Gulf War. They have failed entirely because they believed that it could happen, one, and they have failed entirely because no president since then, has been able to put this terrible expression, boots on the ground. And even if they could, they could not have combated this because here they were still thinking in terms of state-to-state -state mm. warfare when we were talking about asymmetric warfare. There was no central control, no people in countries that got sort of fed up about it, no communities, to, uh, communication to destroy, etc. Complete failure in military strategy. And, and Abdel Barry, uh, what you bring across in this book is, you call it um, the digital caliphate. Um, just talk us a little bit through why the use of social media and the internet has been so successful by IS and why the West has failed to keep up. Well, actually... It is very simple because they have brains who are uh, expert on the social uh, media network. They have those recruits from uh, United States, from Britain, from France, from uh, the Arab worlds. Those people were highly educated in the Western, Western universities. So they are not stupid. They know uh, they, they, they have the expertise to manipulate the social media. For example, they, they tweet about 94 to 100,000 tweets every day uh, on the Twitter. They have, uh, you know, thousands of pages uh, on the uh, Facebook. They have their own uh, uh, media arms, which is uh, Al-Hayat. They produce a very, very sophisticated documentaries. So this kind of experience, actually, it, you cannot match it when it comes to the Western world or the Arab worlds or Arab countries who are fighting the Islamic State. So this expertise managed 
to you know to make them very free from any pressure for example al-qaeda uh, used to be dependent fully in al jazeera to send their videotapes in order to to pass its message to mm. the, the their audience, their supporters. But when it comes to the Islamic State, they don't need Al Jazeera, they don't need CNN, they don't need Western mainstream media. They have their own media and they are very successful. And you mentioned earlier that you think the next target might be Baghdad. What, what, how successful do you think they might be and what do you think the consequences will be if that should happen? Well, actually, the, the most important thing here, we cannot predict the next move of uh, the Islamic State. They are very intelligent, very clever, and they actually plan their, their attacks very, very well. So nobody expects them, for example, to attack uh, Palmyra, mm. so, simply because all the eyes were on the Jordanian-Iraqi border or the Saudi uh, Iraqi border. So suddenly uh, they managed to capture uh, Palmyra and suddenly they managed to capture Ramadi and the whole of Ramadi, the whole of Anbar province. So maybe the next target, you know, this is my prediction, the next target could be Baghdad. Now, they are very close to Baghdad, so I'm not surprised if they actually, if they are not actually kicked out of Ramadi very soon, I, am, I'm, I'm, I expect them to move toward Baghdad. Abdelbar, you visited Osama bin Laden uh, before he was killed. What do you think he'd be saying and doing about the situation with IS at the moment if he were alive? I think he would be extremely jealous. Uh, I, you know, I met him, I spent three days with him in his caves in Torabura. I think he would be extremely jealous. Those people actually outfoxed him. The Islamic State managed uh, to, to achieve what he failed to achieve. They have a land which is equal to the size of Britain. Uh, they have actually a state, a real state, when you, they have their own flag. They have their own army, security forces, cabinet. They impose taxes, collect taxes. Uh, they have custom service. So, you know, Osama bin Laden never did that. Osama bin Laden used to adopt the strategy of hit and run. And he was full mm. of uh, revenge when it comes and hatred toward the American. Those okay. people are maybe cooler, more disciplined, and they know what they want. They want to establish a state. And they did. You know, now they have a state on, on, on partly in Iraq and the other part in Syria. So, Osama bin Laden did not achieve anything. He, was, he wasn't mm. self-sufficient when it comes to money or when it comes to weapon like the Islamic State. They are very, very rich organization, maybe the richest terrorist organization in history. Christopher. Um, um, Abdel Bari mentioned about going into Tora Bora to see uh, Osama bin Laden. Mm. The Americans knew where he was there and they failed to get him. Mm. Uh, and that really tells us the whole story. The, the so-called Western organizations are in no way geared up to counter what has gone on in the past 15 years. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Abdul Bariatwan, thank you very much for your time today. Sit rep with Still to come, what's the US Air Force doing in space? And we hear from a former British soldier who's made a film about the Afghan National Army in Helmand. This is BFBS. Sit rep. This week, the International Institute for Strategic Studies published its 2015 Armed Conflict Survey. Unsurprisingly, it focuses on the rise of global jihadism. Our reporter, Victoria Smith, has been speaking to the Institute's Director of Transnational Threats and Political Risk, Nigel Inkster. Well, I think it is important to understand the broader trends. And, you know, over the course of time, I think there was a, a U.S. academic, Stephen Pinker, who wrote a book a few years ago arguing that uh, levels of armed conflict Conflict have declined throughout the course of human history, and I think, broadly speaking, that is true. But 
Um, there's still plenty of armed conflict around in the world. There is a potential for much more. And I think it is important to, to understand um, what, you know, what are the drivers, what are the causes, and what are the implications of the armed conflict that we have. We said in this uh, report that the number of conflicts is down, but the number of casualties is up. Why is that? Well, the honest answer is we don't know for certain, but I think this has a lot to do with the fact that nowadays people are much more concentrated in cities, urban areas. That is increasingly where conflict is taking place. And so the risk of uh, collateral damage, civilian casualties increases. We also have the increasing lethality of weaponry. Um, we also need to think about other forms of conflict that may not manifest themselves in terms of deaths, injuries, displacement, but represent a kind of ongoing conflict and contestation, so to speak, just below the radar screen. And we see this particularly in the cyber domain. And it's not just a survey about armed conflict per se, but about human displacement as well. And I think you mentioned that uh, 50 million people, were, more than 50 million people were affected in two, two, 2013 by some form of violence. Um, no, well, I mean, the World Bank has said that um, uh, overall in the world there are about 1.5 billion people that are affected by some sort of violence or instability. Now, that is about a fifth of humanity, in other words, quite a lot. When it comes to displacement, um, it was established in 2013 that the figure of um, displaced persons, whether refugees or, as is more commonly the case, internally displaced persons, reached the figure of 50 million for the first time since the end of World War II. So what we're seeing is an inexorable increase in the number of displaced people around the world. That was Nigel Inkster there from the IISS. Christopher, the rise of IS is causing a huge humanitarian crisis. And one aspect, which is the displacement and migration that we're seeing in the Mediterranean, what progress has been made by the international community this week on trying to resolve that issue? Um, basically, there is an idea that you can put in a force which has a humanitarian aspect of it, and that you pull people out of the water or out of, out of vessels. And that there is a basic idea that you go in and say, zap the vessels that are bringing them across. Um, but there's a lot of objections to it in two ways. But one is, what do you do with the influx of migrants when they get into largely Italy, but also into France and Germany? Um, and the French, for example, have taken this past nine months 70,000 uh, extra people, and they say you know, this is very difficult. But the other part of it is very important, and that is that is what they're doing uh, the way to stop the people who are leaving Ethiopia, they're leaving Jordan, Syria, uh, uh, West Africa, and travelling to Libya as only one place. Is that the way of stopping them coming by saying, oh, by the way, there won't be any boats there, so there's no yeah. point in coming? We've just got idea, to make the whole world a better place, really, well, haven't you? Yeah, you, you, you really go, you've got to go out and play whichever god you want to play and say, right, we'll fix this. There is another aspect of it, and this is what is happening and will be happening next month in Italy. There's a group meeting which will say, well, supposing this fails, now what do you do? Can you go after the people that are organising this? Um, can you say that there is another thing militarily? And politically you can do? And the answer is probably not, other than degrade the system that organises, that brings people as far as, say, Libya, um, and say, right, we'll knock those out, because that's exactly what happened. It wasn't such a big task off the coast of Somalia. You went after the pirates, 
but most importantly, you moved into the Gulf and you took out the people that were financing the whole deal. And that's what they've got to start looking for because the so-called people that are bringing them across in boats, they're only sort of middlemen. Well, they're not even middlemen. They're sort of uh, they're, they're the farmers. Of course, uh, NATO defence chiefs are meeting today. Presumably, this will be on their agenda. It is on their agenda, but uh, more importantly, this is the second day of the meeting, 173rd, I think, meeting since NATO was formed in in April 1949, of the chiefs of the defence staff. Um, These are the guys that actually have to say, we have got what our countries want to do in foreign policy. This is what we need to do it, and are we actually capable of doing it? And today there is something called the, um, the, the military strategy plan. And this is all aimed at a summit meeting, a NATO summit meeting, next year, 2016, in Warsaw. Mm-hmm. Now, you imagine you may be Putin sitting in Moscow and said, these guys are meeting where? <laughs> Warsaw? That was mine, mm. or is mine. Uh, and a lot of people are saying who are at that meeting today, when I talk to them, just, you know, just casually, they say, you know, maybe Putin's got all sorts of things lined up for next year to make life intolerable for the whole lot of us. And, and that's what this, we've got to think of. All of this with the backdrop of, of cutting defence budgets throughout NATO allies. Yeah, yeah, and it's, you know, we spend a lot of time saying, ha-ha, will the Chancellor uh, give the MOD jip and will he tell them to... Well, not apparently, according on? to the papers, he already is saying, make some cutbacks, look where you can. Every department's been told to do that. He's going to produce a new budget. Normally, a Chancellor produces one budget a year. He's going to produce, because it's new government, one in July. And he's saying to them, OK, 12% has got to come up. Think where you might be able to cut it. But more importantly, tell me if it is possible. Now, this is not just a... What would you say? Now, this is not just a British thing. I would say this is not a British thing. This is, in fact, a European thing. And what is government policy at the moment is that more has to be done to do things in NATO terms with those members of NATO that can afford to do it. And when you consider one of them is Greece, can afford to do nothing, can't even sell ice cream at the moment. Mm. And so this is the important part of it. You've got to turn around and say, what do you want us to do, government? What do you want to do with your military? Because if you can't tell us, we can't tell you what's got to be cut. Well, no expense spared on this. A special United States Air Force plane has been making trips into space. Not much is known about the unmanned X-37 or 37B spacecraft, which looks like a smaller version of NASA's old space shuttles. The plane is one of two built by Boeing for the US military. There's been a lot of speculation in the American media about what it could be doing. Kenneth Chang has been following the story for the New York Times and joins us now. Hello, Kenneth. So is it the 37 or the 37B? I call it a 37B. Ah, okay. And a plane or a spacecraft? I call it a space plane. Okay. So what what about what it's doing? (laughs) You say tomato, I say tomato. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So all we really know is that it launched to orbit yesterday. It's the fourth trip to orbit. The last time it went up, it was up there for almost two years. And, of course, no one quite knows what it was doing the whole time. Um, This time, again, we don't know exactly what it's doing. But they've actually talked about a few things, a couple experiments that we know that are up there. So one is that they're doing an advanced version of this electric thruster that now move um, satellites or keep it in position. And the military needs really powerful ones because they have big uh, surveillance satellites. So that's one thing that's we know that's being tested up there. Mm. And then we also know that NASA has a, a small experiment in, in the cargo bay of the spacecraft. 
Christopher, um, if this is US Air Force, it's military, and doesn't outer space treaty ban the use of military stuff in space like this? If you go back to the 19, 19, late 1960s, when people were thinking about treaties to sort of demilitarize space, everything from fractional orbital bombardment of nuclear weapons to uh, putting nuclear weapons, and then later on under, I suppose, President Reagan's ambitions for strategic defence initiative, the so-called Star Wars. People looked at space and say, well, that's what it's going to be. What some people are saying about this particular craft and the others that, and, and the future experiments, which are all very similar, is you put it up there for two years and you test all sorts of things. You test, for example, whether the shielding's right, how long it can survive heat, uh, what about communications, um, what about the sort of conditions on board, etc., etc. But then you have to ask the big question, what do you do with it when you've done all these tests? Not do you just junk it. What do you do mm. with such a craft? And this is when you get into the position of where Reagan and co. were in 83 and start thinking about the future use of space as either a defence system, which would take out, for example, or monitor um, Russian uh, intercontinental ballistic missile systems, which are much easier to take out on, on their launch rather than once they get into space, etc. It's the advanced planning mm or what you do when you know that you can keep it up there for a couple of years. Kenneth Chang, I, I presume you might be putting in a few phone calls um, on your side of the pond about this. What kind of response are you getting from the people who know? Um, well, the people who know don't talk to me, of course. <laughs> and okay, go on. What have you been able to glean? So when I first went up in 2010, uh, my colleague Bill Broad was making phone calls to people, and, was, and the Pentagon categorically denied that there's any offensive plans for this spacecraft. And the speculation is that perhaps they're testing new surveillance um, technologies, so, and also that perhaps by it being reusable, they could just land it, put a new um, piece of hardware in there, and launch it again as needed, instead of having to build a brand new satellite from scratch and launch it, which can take years. All right, we'll leave it there for now, and we'll, we'll keep watching this space, as it were. Kenneth Chang, Chang from the New York Times, thank you for joining us today. Um, a new film giving a unique insight into the Afghan army in Helmand has been shown in Britain for the first time this week. Tell Spring Not to Come This Year was co-produced by a former British soldier. It follows the progress of a group of ANA warriors when they took sole control of combat operations from the British. James Hurst has been talking to the filmmakers. The film follows uh, the 3rd Battalion of the 3rd Brigade of, of the Afghan National Army who are based in um, just around Goresh. This film shows Helmand back in the hands of Afghans. It shows it through Afghan eyes, the story told only by Afghan voices. The central locations, including Sangin and Yakchal, will be familiar to many who served in the province. But Michael McAvoy, who produced this film after deploying in 2012, wanted to show something deeper. A lot of British soldiers obviously deployed to Helmand and perhaps didn't speak the language or didn't spend that much time uh, with the Afghan army, or even if they did, they didn't perhaps have that window into their lives, their personal perspectives. I mean, the whole reason that said, you know, I wanted to make that film and, and not have either of our voices in it and just have the Afghan perspective was to really put that Afghan voice back into it. Mike approached me and said, look, I have this interesting concept. Would you like to make this film? And we didn't know each other before then. And as soon as he told me the idea, of course, I understood that this was a very unique perspective. No one 
Experienced documentary maker Saeed Taji Faruqi joined forces with Michael on repeated trips to Helmand. We filmed over the period of a year, about a year. Uh, so roughly October to October 2013-2014. Uh, and the idea was really to time it with the end of the NATO mission. We got very lucky in that the, almost the last day of filming was actually when uh, NATO officially handed Bastion over to the Afghan army. So uh, the idea was we would see exactly what was going to happen next. That was always the... The purpose of the film. The film's title, Tell Spring Not to Come This Year, is a reference to the Taliban's annual offensive. And it graphically depicts some fierce fighting as the Afghans battle to evacuate those who are badly injured. Whilst their equipment is lacking in certain areas and there's a lot of room for improvement, particularly in you know air support and medevac. A lot of the problems they're facing is to do with the nature of the conflict rather than them being a good or bad army. They know how to fight. A lot of these guys have been doing it for 15, 20 years. They've been in more contacts than you know, British soldiers have had cooked dinners. <laughs> As the film comes to a close, it reveals disappointment, even a sense of abandonment from some Afghan soldiers, with NATO troops all but gone. I think for a lot of them it was just very confusing that after you know, 13, 14 years, these highly advanced armies hadn't been able to defeat the Taliban. Many of them were happy they were being trained by foreign forces. But at the same time, they wanted those forces to leave so they could take responsibility for their own country. And that's one of the things we wanted to show in the film, is it's not a simple, I support the Americans, I don't. I like the British soldiers, I don't like them. It's mu the story is much more complicated. You know, I hope that the film provides that perspective into, you know, how did they perceive us? And, you know, hopefully that will give us lessons in, in the future for how to deal with these sort of conflicts. Tell Spring Not to Come This Year has already won awards on the International Film Festival circuit and after its premiere at London's Frontline Club this week, it will next be shown at the Sheffield Documentary Festival next month. James Hurst reporting. And you may have heard Christopher Lee just speaking a little bit prematurely there before the end of that report. Let's talk about Spend what... Spend my life <laughs> speaking <talk> prematurely <laughs> in this place, I tell you. Uh, here's your moment. Uh, Christopher, uh, what else is around this week? We're talking about North Korea, because it's stopped Ban Ki-moon visiting. Uh, yeah, North Korea, uh, which everybody says, well, the, the guy that runs it is, is a basket case, but it's fascinating for a basket case. He's always being reported. Now, Ban Ki-moon, who is the United Nations Secretary General, a very important guy in terms of bringing people together when there's a misunderstanding. Uh, he was supposed to be just about to visit... And Kim Jong-un, the, uh, the, the leader of uh, uh, North Korea, said, you can't come in. Now, that is a basket case, no. That is somebody who's got a purpose, because the next day he says, well, by the way, we're developing a new uh, nuclear weapon, and we can probably provide a missile that it can carry. Mm. In other words, you can miniaturize the whole thing down. Now... There are people sitting in... Do we believe him, though? Well, I'm I just mean, going to say uh, there, there are Apparently the pictures that were published demonstrating him pointing out to see at something of this ilk were doctored anyway. Well, not only doctored, it was one of ours being test-fired as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that is the craziness about it, but there's mm. a whole desk, for example, in, in the CIA, in the NSA, in the Defence Intelligence Agency, in the United Kingdom, etc., who've done nothing else 
but watch the man with the haircut. He's caught, it was called the haircut file doing exactly that. Let's so a, let's watch it. Let's talk about uh, other files, Osama bin Laden files, because uh, the, the, the actual, some of the documentation that's been found in the compound where he was killed has been released. Uh, what we found from his bookshelf, apparently. Well, there's quite a lot on Pearl Harbor, um, which is interesting because he wanted to see how the Americans reacted and also the theories of how the attack was launched. So he's thinking... Those Apparently days. he had application forms for would-be jihadists as well. Well, you, yes, it, it, it was sort of something which uh, human resources, we've got a lot to learn from from this. What sort of person do you sort of uh, recruit? What sort, make sure that you're not recruiting somebody and who's kind of been, how far are you prepared to go? Well, you don't, you don't uh, take on somebody who's a bit of an orange. In other words, somebody who's been put in there as, to spy on you. I like the one where he had profiles of bishops in the Church of England. Right. Now, anybody now, who's, why would he do that? Uh, perhaps he's fascinated by the chaos of the Church of England and it's all its debates lately about women, priests, etc. Uh, and also, uh, what he didn't have, which I thought was even more interesting, he didn't have anything about priests and, and cardinals in the Church of Rome, which, of course, far more anxiety. Why do you think that might be? Uh, well, obviously, he, he sees the Anglican Church as the, as the homespun theory of uh, of colonial, colonialism, uh, which is what he's been saying for a long time and anyway. there is Christopher Lee's homespun theory of the week. No, I'm a Catholic. <laughs> That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our contributors and to you for listening. Do keep your comments coming in on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP. Join us again next week. But from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening again. Bye for now. Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.